0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Ventura, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Ventura, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Ventura. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. So... Creative Financing and Real Estate Entrepreneurship. I'm James Orr. So when I, when I started putting together this series of classes, I, um, I wanted to cover all of the different real estate investing strategies. I did a, a single two hour class where I went through all the different strategies with like a, big picture, like a big picture overview. But then my idea was to go through then and dive deep into each individual strategy, talk about those in detail, and then give you real numbers as to how that strategy might perform for you achieving financial independence Uh, with with these kind of tools whatever whatever strategy we're talking about um, and then compare those across different strategies like how does buy and hold compare to fix and flip or creative financing or house hacking or nomading and so i wanted to go and do deep dives into each of the classes but traditionally i've only usually covered These three primary strategies, the buy and hold strategy, including short-term vacation rentals, all the different variations of Nomad, Nomad by proxy, Nomad with house hacking, Nomad to short-term rental, Nomad with lease option exit, and then the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. So like all the variations of Nomad and then house hacking. So these were the classes, if you've been here for however long, we've been doing classes since 2003. So for most of those time, we've been doing these it's been really exceptional for us to go do classes on these other strategies so tonight's a kind of odd class in a lot of ways because i don't typically teach creative financing i mean i've done a lot of creative financing um not recently but i mean i've done a lot of creative financing especially early on in my career and then like quick turning flipping properties burr wholesaling wholesaling, options option auctions tax liens and partnerships so these are sort of like the secondary tier of class topics that i don't frequently teach although in some cases i've got you know good experience in those And especially with the modeling we do, I think you'll learn some stuff that you've never seen before. So these are sort of like the secondary ones. And so you're getting what I would consider like a secondary topic tonight. I think it's super interesting and probably a primary topic for a lot of folks, but not what we typically would cover in the class series. And then there's some stuff that we're just not gonna cover like real estate investment trusts, go talk to a stockbroker and then things like probate short sales, foreclosures and pre foreclosures. Those are really part of other strategies. They're not their own strategy by themselves. Like, you know, someone who's in pre foreclosure, they could be a good candidate for you coming in and buying the property creatively, but it's not big enough to be its own, like two hour class as an example. So that's sort of like the real estate investing strategies and what we've done. If you've noticed though, We've already covered a 2-hour version of buy and hold. We've covered a 2-hour version of nomad, a 2-hour version of house hacking. We're doing creative financing tonight. We did a 2-hour class on quick turning, flipping properties. We did a 2-hour class on the burst strategy. I'm going to do wholesaling, options and option auction, tax liens, tax deeds, and then partnerships is next week. So you'll see that we're going through the whole kind of like pattern, the whole whatever you call it. Oh, I don't know, the whole thing, whatever it means there. Any questions on this? All right, cool. All right. So I'm going to take some time to go over all the different types of creative financing and uh, make sure that you got that. Did you guys all get handouts? If you haven't been to one of the like, class where, you've, uh, where we've done these models before, there's some handouts for you. If you've been already and you don't mind, because uh, some of them I don't know if I printed enough, uh, but if you email me afterward, I'll give you a copy. Um, but if you if you just do the one there, it's like a, a handout that goes over all the different strategies and then a, a kind of like a strategy profile for filling out the strategy tonight and then one for the loans kind of goes over the different loans. So if you don't have those, make sure you get them. You guys should have copies, right? The yeah, they're the same as last time. They're not any different. They're all the same. Okay, so let's do credit financing. I'm just going to walk through all these different ones. Um, and if you haven't been to a live class before, I'm really informal. So if you've got questions, please interrupt and I'll be sure to answer any questions you have. If you need extra copies, go ahead and take them, while I have them, if you need them so, or if you need some place, take notes. Okay, so creative financing. So let's start with owner financing. So owner financing is when the seller of the property, the owner of the property, acts like the bank. They are willing to accept monthly payments, or yearly payments, or quarterly payments, whatever you guys decide to negotiate, but most of the time it's gonna be monthly payments. They'll accept monthly payments for you to acquire the property. There'll usually be a mortgage or deed of trust on the property and you'll make payments to them based on your agreement, your loan agreement with them. And then once you've paid off the property in full, they will release their lien on the property and you will be the complete owner. So you go to them and instead of having to go to a bank separately and get financing, you ask the seller to carry back the financing. So you say, listen, Mr. Seller, I want you to, um, I want you to sell me your property for $400,000 and uh, I may or may not give you a down payment, you negotiate all that, and you may or may not look at my credit score, which is also negotiated, but then you make payments to them based on whatever interest rate you negotiate, whatever term of the loan you negotiate. So that's what owner financing is. Does anyone have questions on owner financing? It's a pretty straightforward one. Yeah? Does does the seller, That's a really good question. So the question was for the microphone, does the seller need to have their loan paid off in order to be able to offer owner financing? And so for the formal definition of what I call owner financing, yes. Otherwise, you'd be in the, what I call the wrap financing column here. So if you have wrap financing, then that would be where the seller has an existing uh, underlying loan on it, and then they're wrapping that loan and accepting payments from you for a larger amount, and then they're using part of the payment that you make to them to pay the underlying loan that still exists on there. So. My definition of owner financing is it has to be free and clear. Uh, my definition with wrap financing is you can get, you can get a seller to offer some type of seller financing, um, but they could wrap the underlying loan there. Or if the seller has the ability, they could pay off that underlying loan completely, then the property would be free and clear and then they could offer regular owner financing to you. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, so going on to the next one, which is wrap financing. wrap financing is when the seller has an existing loan on the property and then they're going to willing to sell the property to you and they're going to say, look, I owe $50,000 on a $400,000 property, but I will finance the full $400,000. I will collect a payment from you based on a certain interest rate and a certain time period for the $400,000 loan, but part of that payment you're gonna make to me, I'm gonna use that to pay that $50,000 loan that I still have on the property. So part of the payment goes to the seller, part of the payment goes to the underlying financing, at least you hope it does, because if they don't, that underlying loan could technically foreclose and you could be kind of SOL, okay? So, wrap financing is when the seller has an existing loan, but then they otherwise wrap it. Now, here's another interesting thing. Around here, we're gonna talk about what subject two here is, and why don't I to just talk about subject two here next, but subject two in, in Colorado, they want us to do those as wrap financing. They don't want us to do straight up subject two. They don't want the seller to just deed you the property and have no recourse if you don't make the payments. So, they would prefer that you have the seller go wrap the loan So that if you don't make the payments, the seller can foreclose and get the property back on the thing. And you'll want to go talk to an attorney. We're going to have a slide up here in a little bit where it talks about going to talk to an attorney to make sure that you have the right paperwork and that you're structuring it right in your area. Because it's not enough for you to say, James told me this is how we need to do it. So that's how I'm going to do it. You really do need to go get advice from an attorney and make sure you structure this right. It's one of the costs. For you to do creative financing, you need to go consult with an attorney and get everything set up correctly one time. And then, if you decide you want to hire them for each deal, you can do that. If you think you know enough after you've talked to the attorney, when you got all your paperwork done right the first time, then you can decide to just do that yourself. That's up to you. All right, so let's skip down here to subject two, because I sort of like uh, told you that you need to do wrap financing instead of straight up subject two. So, what is subject two? Subject two is buying a property where you agree to make existing payments on the underlying loan so imagine you had a seller who was married uh, him and his spouse um, owned a property and she decided to run off with the uh, plumber and so she left him and he's like look i can't live in this house anymore I can't afford to make the monthly payments. I'm gonna move back in with my parents, try to like recover emotionally and financially from this devastating event with my wife leaving with the plumber. I don't want this house anymore. I'm just gonna let it go to foreclosure. And so you say, well, wait a minute, Mr. Seller, instead of you ruining your credit and letting it go to foreclosure, why don't I come in and I'll just start making payments on your existing loan? And because you're disappearing to Florida and I don't know where you're gonna be, I mean, for all I know, you could totally go to you know, South America or wherever and just disappear completely. I don't want to have this thing lying out here where I'm renting it from you. Why don't you deed me the property now and I will make payments on your underlying loan and I'll own the property, but the loan will remain in your name. And so you won't have a foreclosure on your record. You won't be late on this loan cause I'll make payments on it and everyone will be happy. And the seller says to you, if you give me $2,000 to help get me to Florida, you got a deal. And so now you bought the property subject to the existing financing. So you bought the property and you start making payments on that underlying loan. Does that make sense? That's what subject to is. It's buying a property and agreeing to make payments on the underlying loan. Did I go, if I'm the buyer here, did I go to the bank and get permission from the bank to make payments on that loan? I did not. Okay. And most loans, I would say 99.9% of all the loans being made today, have what's called a due on sale or due on transfer clause in them. And what that due on sale or due on transfer clause says is that if the seller transfers ownership of the property, that the lender has the right, does not have the obligation, but they can, at their option, decide to accelerate the loan so that the entire loan is due and payable. And if you're unwilling or unable to pay the entire loan off, then they can foreclose on it and get ownership of the property back if the seller transfers ownership and does not pay off the underlying loan. So there is some risk to buying a property subject too. Now, do, do all banks, as soon as they find out that the loan is transferred, do they all go and say, we want the full thing paid in full and, and do that? Nope, they don't. But could they? Yes, they can. And in fact, I usually do this just to make my point, and you, and you guys can't say, James never told me that a lender can call the loan due. So for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now almost, I've been teaching class since 2003, so was that, almost 20 years? I always stand on a chair and I tell you, the lenders can foreclose on the property. When you transfer title, they can decide to accelerate the loan. That due on sale, due on transfer clause means that they can decide to call the loan due. So you can't say, James, you never told me that, because I'll tell you, I stood on a chair and I told you that the lender can actually do that. Now, will they do that? I don't know, historically they haven't, but you know, if you go and now interest rates for the last couple of years have been in the, I don't know, 3%, 2% sometimes, you know, 4% range, and now interest rates are 5%, 6%, 7%, and you're going to go, you know, take over a loan subject to, and the interest rate's three percent. And if you had to go refinance, you know, the loan's going to be at five or six percent. Might a lender be motivated to say we're going to accelerate the loan? I could see a case where they would. The chance of you going back to that lender and refinancing, like they're not going to get the four, five, or six percent loan. Right? I mean, you're going to go to a different lender. If they're foreclosing on you, or they're threatening to to kind of like accelerate the mortgage, are you going to go to that lender and try to get a loan? Unless they give you some type of incentive to do so, probably not. So, they're not really probably going to directly benefit. But what if they had some motivation? What if they, you know, thought for some reason getting this loan off their books was a benefit to them, and they were looking for a reason to get it off the books? Could they go and do that? Absolutely. Okay. And so. Remember my example where the guy was going to, you know, his, his wife left him and went off with the plumber and now he's moving to Florida? Well, what happens if you don't make the payments on his loan? Right? Now it's a problem for him because now the loan is now, you know, in default um, and he could be foreclosed on. He could have a foreclosure on his record. That's not ideal. And so one of the reasons why I told you that, um, at least in Colorado here, they want you to do rap financing instead of buying subject to is because with rap financing, if you're not making the payment to them, they can then say, wait a minute, okay, now I can foreclose on you because uh, you are not making the payment to me, which means the payment on the underlying loan is not being made, and now I have some recourse against you for doing that. Where before they don't, because they deeded you the property, deed, the deed represents ownership. So if the seller deeds you the property, you now own the property. Even though there's a loan in their name still on the property, okay? So that's why we tend to do RAP financing. But again, you're gonna to wanna to talk to an attorney and get like specific advice about this. Does anyone have any questions on subject to RAP financing or owner financing at this point? We've covered a lot of them. I heard somewhere that they're offering insurance for that, have you heard of that? No, insurance in what way? So uh, Bill said, it's Bill, right? Yeah, the due on sale clause. So if the bank actually goes forward with it, you can buy insurance to protect you from that. I've not heard that. If you do find out where it is, please email me, because I'd be interested to see what that says. Yeah, I've not heard of that. So Bill said that there's a company that's offering you insurance in case a a bank decides to accelerate the loan and execute their due on sale clause. I've not heard that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I will tell you, this this is a gray area, a relatively controversial subject. There are some people that will tell you it's not a big deal. Go ahead and transfer it. I've never seen one happen. I actually know of one that had that was accelerated but like some people say you know I've you know I've never seen it happen Um, you know so you could do this with impunity it's not a big deal they'll also tell you you know just hide that you've done the transfer like you know buy the property put it into a trust Um, you know if you put the property they'll tell you they'll tell you this it's not true they'll tell you if you put the property into a trust if you have the seller put a property into a trust and then you take over the trust that actually eliminates the ability for the lender to to accelerate the loan and use the due on sale clause and then start their foreclosure process if they want to. That's not true. There's a, the phrase that they're referring to is that a seller can move the property into a trust for their own um, estate planning purposes. But as soon as you take over ownership of the trust, you violate a due on sale clause. is if they maintain ownership of the trust, if it actually is for their benefit directly, then that doesn't violate the do on sale clause. But if you take actually ownership of the trust, then that happens there. And they'll say, but you know, no one really knows the trust. The trust is a private document. It kind of sits there. Well, maybe, right? I mean, if a seller really wanted to know, and the information technology has become so good these days, that if a seller really wanted to know, they're going to look at stuff like, did the insurance change names? Did the, did the water bill get changed to a different name? Did the electric bill get changed? And you're going to say, but you know, sometimes tenants will do that. Yeah, you have enough of these things happening. I think a motivated like, lender could go and do that. So just do it with your eyes open. Talk to a, an attorney and get advice on it. But uh, this is not a with the zero risk proposition, in my opinion. And there's people that have different opinions and they'll tell you that. You could do this with impunity. It doesn't matter. Um, you'll see that online all the time. Any questions on that, especially the part about it being controversial in the gray area? All right, cool. What's that? You want me to get up on the chair? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the three there. Owner financing, wrap financing, subject to. What about loan assumption? Well, subject to is when you buy a property and you do not get the lender's permission. But certain loans, you can formally go to the lender and actually assume the loan. You could say to the lender, hey, look, this loan is assumable. I would actually like to come in and I would, I would like to take over the payments for this particular seller and I will formally assume all responsibilities for this loan. And so you can go to the lender and formally assume a loan. That's different than subject to. You're going there and you're getting the permission of the lender and with the blessing of the lender and usually a fee, you're going in there and taking over the loan and doing it that way. Does that make sense? That's the difference between loan assumption and subject to, okay? Okay, so the rent to own, lease to own, lease option and lease purchase family. They're all really, really similar in my mind because you're leasing the property, the seller of the property, the owner of the property is saying to you, look, I will allow you to have occupancy of the property and in exchange for that, you're gonna pay me a fee, usually monthly, it doesn't have to be, but it usually is monthly. They're gonna pay you a monthly, fee. They're going to pay, you're gonna pay the seller a monthly fee in order to lease the property or rent the property for a period of time. But then in addition to that, you agree with the seller, look, Mr. Seller, Provided I pay the rent for the next year or two, how about you give me the ability to buy this property from, some point, from you at some point in the future for some price that you've negotiated, um, with some terms that you've negotiated, like who pays what and when and how. So that is a lease option or a lease purchase or rent to own or lease to own type of situation. You're leasing the property and you have the right to buy the property at some point in the future. So a lease option is a lease agreement With an option agreement, you have the option to buy the property at some point in the future. You can choose not to exercise your option if you want to. That's what a lease option is. You lease the property, and at some point in the future, if it makes sense to do so, you can go and buy the property, lease option. A lease purchase is a lease agreement with a purchase contract. And there's usually a little bit of a stronger implication in a purchase contract that says you intend to purchase the property. It doesn't mean that you have to, Unless it's specific performance, in which case you could be sued if you don't perform. But in most cases, it's some type of lease purchase. And the purchase is like, usually based on some type of like earnest money, where if you don't exercise the purchase contract, then you lose your earnest money. Although there's some, there's some ways you could write it where you don't actually lose your earnest money. But I think most of the time, there's some type of loss there. So rent-to-own, lease-to-own, lease lease option, lease purchase, they're all really in that same family. You're leasing a property for a period of time, and you have either the option to buy it or you have an implication to buy it with a purchase agreement. So those are what those are. Anyone have any questions on those? Okay. Agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment land contract. So you know when you buy your car, you don't actually own your car until you've made all the payments, right? You get the title at the end. Well, that's sort of what this agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment land contract are. You're making payments on a property over time, and if you fulfill all the payments in, a, in like the terms of your agreement, then at the end of that, the seller is going to give you the deed to the property. You have an agreement to make payments, and then eventually you get the deed, bless you. Or you have an installment land contract. You have a contract for the deed where you're, you're agreeing to do certain things, and at the end you get the deed for the property. So it's sort of like car payments for houses is the best way I can describe it. Okay. So those really are the six types of creative financing. Owner financing where they don't have a loan and the seller acts like the bank. Wrap financing where they have an underlying loan and the seller acts sort of like the bank but there's a loan on the property. Loan assumption where you formally go and assume responsibility for the loan with the lender. The rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase family where you're leasing the property and you have the right to buy it at some point in the future. The agreement for deed, contract for deed, installment land contract, that sort of family where you are kind of like making payments and then you get the deed at the end. And then finally, subject to, where the seller just deeds you the property and you, technically you don't even have to make payments on the underlying loan. It doesn't have to be that. You're just buying the property knowing that there are existing liens on the property. But in the overwhelming majority of the cases, you're gonna agree to make the payments on on that loan. You're buying the property subject to, and you're gonna agree to the seller that you're gonna make those payments. Any questions on those six? Okay. So for tonight, I'm going, to, I'm going to discuss those different strategies and we're going to go into like all the different risks and is it scalable and all the kind of different characteristics of doing these strategies. But I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about things and I have to generalize in order to do it. Are there exceptions to what I'm going to say tonight? Could you say to me, but what James, what about this really weird situation where this happens and this happens and this happens? Isn't that sort of different than what you're saying? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I can't cover every possible situation that comes up. So there are exceptions to everything I'm, I'm going to say. And I've tried to be... Comprehensive and include everything I can, but it's not possible to do that. There are exceptions to everything. So you can find a deal or structured deal to make choices that are not in line with what I've defined here. And beware, just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. This is designed, in my opinion, to be a starting point discussion to help you make better investing decisions on your own with additional knowledge. This is not like the end of your education. And at a minimum, in my opinion, in order to do any creative financing deals, you should budget talking to an attorney in your marketplace who, who, who like specializes in doing creative financing to make sure you're doing it right in your marketplace. You should not say, James told me this, therefore it is 100% correct in my marketplace. Okay, do your own research. All right, so creative financing variations. So if, you're, if you have your handout with you, the one that has like the, the, like all the different creative financing things on here, you'll notice at the very top is a quote. It says, what's a strategy? A strategy is a unique combination of entry, holding period, and exit. So how you get into a deal, the period of time or how you hold the property, and then how you get out of a deal. Okay? So entries can be any number of the creative financing options. You could buy a property using lease option, you could buy it using subject to, you could buy it using wrap financing, you could buy it with owner financing. Those are all examples. A holding period can be dictated by the type of financing you do. If you have a lease option on a property and your lease is two years long and your option agreement is two years long, you're not holding it forever. You have a two year period. So the type of acquisition financing, the type of entry you use can dictate exactly how long your holding period is. And the exit is not usually hold forever with all the creative financing. It's really, really rare. The, the exceptions are probably loan assumption, maybe the agreement for deed family, and owner financing where those could be hold forever if that's what your agreement with the seller says. If the seller expects to get payments from you for 30 years with owner financing, then maybe it is hold forever. But the majority of these other creative financing strategies, lease option, lease purchase, subject to, wrap financing, in most cases, you're not holding those forever. Those are like short-term holding periods. And by short-term, I mean, a few years you know five years or so is kind of like the limit for those can you hold them longer sure but i think the longer you hold them the more risk exposure you have um, for these properties and maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking about this wrong and some people would probably argue i am thinking about it wrong because they would argue hey look if they haven't done a due on sale or due on transfer clause um, acceleration for the five years then they're probably not going to do it at all but i don't know i i don't like having all these different loans out there and having the, the ability to have them call due at any given time Um, That's just not a strategy that I'd want to do so um, So exit is not usually hold forever awesome lease option exits from any creative financing is what people will use So they'll they'll go buy a property using one of the creative strategies and then they'll immediately turn around and offer it on a lease a lease, (coughs) excuse me On a lease with an option to their tenant buyer So they'll put someone in there who's gonna lease the property from them and expects to buy it from in a year or two or three or whatever It is down the road Okay, so that's usually what a lot of creative financing sellers, creative, finance, creative real estate entrepreneurs uh, would structure their deals. They would acquire it creatively and then they would immediately sell it to a tenant buyer in some form or another. Now you can do these in your local market, but you can also do these remotely. If you happen to be in a market where a lot of these other strategies are really hard to implement, um, this is not a strategy that you have to move into a property. It's not like doing no matter house hacking. where you have to live in the property. These can be done remotely. It involves different skills. I mean, to be able to go buy properties creatively in, you know, a different city is is different than trying to do it here locally, where you can sit down across across from the seller and do it all. Um, so yeah, you can do it locally or you can do it remotely. They can be properties of any type. It doesn't have to be single-family homes. It could be duplexes, triplex, fourplex. It could be commercial buildings. It could be industrial buildings. It could be anything. We're going to tend to focus tonight on single-family homes, and then. This, this is an interesting one, and if you're interested in it, you probably should look into it more. But Richard Roop used to teach um, a strategy called the ultimate strategy, which is a variation on owner financing. And, and really, the, the like short, really short, I'm, I'm probably doing a horrible job at, at explaining it to you, but the real difference is that with owner financing, uh, the way Richard Roop teaches it with the ultimate strategy is he will <clears throat> include in there a term that allows you to move the loan to a different property. So if you get owner financing on a property, and you you ultimately sell that property two or three three years down the road, you may not want to actually pay off the property, right? You may wanna say, I'm gonna sell it, but I've got this really great owner financing loan on it. And you wanna be able to move that loan to another property so that you can use that financing again repeatedly. And so that's called substitution of collateral. If you're interested in that, go do a search for substitution of collateral and it will allow you to substitute the collateral. The collateral in this case was the house. So you could sell the house and say, okay, this house was the collateral for this mortgage I had on this property, but owner financing mortgage. But now since I've sold that property, I'm gonna move this to another property that I own or a property that I'm acquiring and I can can substitute the collateral. And you'd wanna do that if you were creating really, really good owner financing with the seller and the seller ideally wants to continue receiving payments from you. Maybe they don't want to receive a you know, $400,000 lump sum of money and kind of screw up their tax planning. Maybe they really do want to keep that. And so they may be motivated to allow you to move this loan from one to another. So if you're interested in that, go look up Substitution Collateral and you can find some different strategies. There's some pretty interesting things you can do with that. Um, another source of this idea of Substitution Collateral, um, I'm not sure if they're even selling them anymore, but uh, it was um, a guy named Mike Summy I think it's Summy, S-U-M-M-E-Y, I believe. Mike Summy, And he wrote, uh, along with Roger Dawson, he did a series of books called The Weekend Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And there's a series of them. There's like The Weekend Millionaire Real Estate Investor um, book, there's like an FAQ book, there's a book on negotiations, which Roger Dawson is sort of known for. And those are actually pretty good books for, um, for kind of like doing um, calculations for owner financing and making sure that you're only buying positive cash flowing properties and things of that nature. And he does talk about substitution collateral in there. Um, So that's another good reference for it if you're kind of looking for a a mass market paperback source for this information, so. All right, any questions on uh, creative financing variations? Is this helpful for you guys? Mm -hmm. All right. Sometimes I get in my own zone. I like just sort of like walk and talk and pace and you guys get the benefit of that. I look like a caged animal up here, just walking back and forth. All right, so is real estate, is like all the creative financing stuff, is that like a real estate investor strategy where someone is deploying money and they're expecting to get a return on their money? Or is it more of like an entrepreneurial, like a real estate entrepreneurship sort of thing where they're actively doing work and they're expecting to be, earning money for the work and labor that to do. Maybe there's a little bit of money involved in there, but primarily it's like the effort and the, and the labor doing it. What do you think for creative financing? Is it usually like a, I'm deploying a large amount of money or is it usually like I'm out there hustling and doing work and trying to convert that to big chunks of cash in some form or another? What do you think? Yeah, I think this is an entrepreneurship one. I think this is a pretty clear example of it. You're gonna do all this effort and work. You're not really taking like big down payments and going buying you know, 20% down or 25% down buying whole type properties. So here's the big slide, and this is a slide I think that it's gonna disappoint some folks, because they're all coming into this creative financing world thinking, you know, I don't need to do, I didn't want to do all this creative financing because I don't need to have any money in the deal, right? I could do all this stuff without any money. Well, maybe. I mean, you, you probably could find a deal where you could do it with no money, but I think that's exceptional. I mean, like really, really exceptional. And once you see my list of what the expenses are for doing it, I think you'll agree with me, it would be pretty exceptional to do that. So the first thing for money, money required, the first thing is you absolutely have to go talk to an attorney. I think anyone who is gonna go try to do these deals without having a consultation with a local attorney who specializes in some type of creative real estate financing, um, I, I think that's a huge mistake. I think you could, you could easily lose a lot more money than you could possibly make on this deal by screwing this up. And so it pays to go have a one hour, two hour, three hour consultation. It'll cost you, I don't know, 500 bucks, maybe $1,000. But if you think about it in terms of being able to acquire deals creatively now, I think that's a well worth a worthwhile expense to do that. So number one, you need to have a consultation with local attorney to get the correct paperwork and advice on how to structure these deals. Because if you hadn't come to this class or listened to the, this episode in the podcast later, you would think to yourself, oh, I'll just buy subject two. I don't know about this whole rap financing thing. I didn't realize that that was going to be a big issue. And it's not an issue until it is, right? It's not an issue until something happens where now the seller feels like you screwed them and they go and they talk to you know, the uh, Division of Securities or, you know, the, the, what do they call the people that are looking out for the consumer's welfare in like the state? Anyone know what that division is? It's like the Consumer Protection Department or something. I don't know what they call it. But if you, they go complain that you're doing this kind of weird stuff and they, an un, a, a, a kind of government agency with unlimited resources and trying to make a lesson of you, I don't know. I'm not sure I'd want to be on the other side of that. So I think you want to go talk to an attorney, make sure you structure this correctly, get the right paperwork for your city, make sure you're doing it right. So that's money required. And I think if you're doing your first deal, I think you could structure this in a way where that becomes almost a cost of doing the deal, right? You, t- you, you can come to an agreement in, in kind of spirit with the seller and say, look, um, you know, a seller, so once we come to an agreement on paper, I'm gonna go meet with the attorney and have the attorney draft this up the way it's supposed to be with legal paperwork. And that sort of becomes part of your acquisition for the property on that first one. You don't have to do it ahead of time, although I probably would, I, but, No, I'd rather spend the money up front and know exactly what I'm doing rather than wait till the last minute and try to structure it that way. Okay, so money required, consultation with local attorney to get correct paperwork and advice. The next thing is, how do you find these deals? We're gonna talk tonight, I have a a few slides on marketing. Um, We're gonna talk tonight about lazy marketing versus poor marketing. Lazy marketing is where you're willing to spend money in order to get deals flowing to you. That's lazy marketing. Poor marketing is where you're willing to put in effort Time, in order to have deals that you go out there and find. Okay, and I'll have, I have a couple slides with the examples and I'll go into that. But if you're not going to do all poor marketing, which you're going to get tired of doing this if, you, if you've never done this before to go try to find deals using the poor strategies, it's very, very labor intensive and I don't think it's very much fun personally. But you know, I think eventually you want to get to the point where you're doing lazy marketing, you're putting out marketing, spending money to do things and having deals flow to you. So I think you're going to need to have money, bless you. I think you're going to need to have money set aside marketing in order to find or acquire the deal. So you're going to spend money in order to acquire the deal. And I'll tell you my assumptions for what we do when we get to the numbers later tonight. Okay. So that's marketing to find or acquire the deal. In addition to that, you're going to need some type of money to capture the deal. You're going to need earnest money or an option fee. You know, if you're doing a lease option with the seller, you need to pay the seller an option fee in most cases. You know, some people will teach you online. You could do this really cheap. Give the seller 20 bucks. You're good. It's still 20 bucks. And I think most sellers are probably gonna want a little bit more than that. You'll open yourself up to more deal flow if you're willing to do the deals that require more money. If a seller says, look, I can't do this deal unless you give me $2,000, if you don't have $2,000 to do the deal, you can't do that deal, right? You can try to wholesale it or something like that, but you can't do the deal if you don't have money. And so what happens to the sellers that are like, look, I've got a ton of equity in my property, I just need $20,000, otherwise I'll let you buy my property subject too, or wrap financing. Well, you have to have the twenty thousand dollars to do that. Otherwise, that deal was dead to you. It wasn't a good enough deal. Does that make sense? So by having some money, you open yourself up to an additional number of deals or additional percentage of deals. So you need earnest money or an option fee or something like that. I think that's part of the money required to do that. Sometimes you'll need a down payment. You know, if you're doing owner finance seller so says, look, I'll owner finance this property, but I want you know 5% down or 10% down or 20% down. I need a certain amount of money to do X. My daughter's wedding you know my uh i need to pay for school for my kid in college and so i need twenty-five thousand dollars. otherwise i'll accept payments over time but i need a certain chunk up front and so this is all negotiated but you might need money for down payment and if you're taking over debt if you're if you're agreeing to make payments on a a seller's loan you know a lot of times you'll say look i'm going to buy the property on the first well technically for the seller the payment on the first really pays their mortgage for the previous 30 days. Because mortgages are paid in arrears. When you get a brand new mortgage, you don't make a payment on day one. You make a payment 30 days after. Right? You live in the property for you know, a month, and then you make the payment for the period of time that you lived in before. But sellers don't remember that. Okay? When you go and you buy a property from them on the 1st, they're thinking you're making that mortgage payment on the 1st. Okay? So when you go and you take over a loan, a lot of times, you're not in arrears. You're making that payment looking forward, almost as if you were a renter. Sometimes you'll need repair costs. So you know, try to think you're gonna be able to do these deals with no money. A lot of times you're gonna go on a property and you know, a lot of times the seller is motivated, they haven't been doing maintenance on the property. They haven't been taking care of the carpet. They haven't been taking care of the kitchen. They have a whole bunch of little like fixer upper sort of things. You know, $500, $1,000, $2,000 paints, you know, things like that that need to be done in the property. So sometimes you'll need massive repairs if something needs really serious fix up. But in most cases, even relatively pretty houses, if a seller is motivated, a lot of times they're motivated. They've been motivated for a little while. They haven't been doing things or sometimes you have to make up back payments on a loan. You know, they're two months behind on their mortgage. They're willing to come in and let you take over payments on their existing loan. But the reason they're able to do that is because they're going to be foreclosed on otherwise. And so you need to make up two months worth of payments. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. You'll need some closing costs. You know, I think a lot of attorneys are probably going to suggest to you that you close this at a title company or an attorney's office, depending on what is customary in your marketplace. They don't want you to do something at the kitchen table and bring in a mobile notary and have them doing something because a lot of sellers don't realize that they're transferring ownership of their property if you do it at the kitchen table. They want you to go down to a title company and have it done legitimately. And you probably should buy title insurance in a lot of cases. So you'll need to have regular closing costs in order to acquire some of these deals, especially if your attorney suggests you do that. And then finally, once you acquire the property, there's some expense to holding the property while you're marketing it to find a tenant or the marketing itself in order to find your tenant, or your tenant buyer. If you're gonna put a tenant in there who's gonna buy it from you, you need to spend a little bit of money in order to find those, those people. You know, we've, we've kind of gotten spoiled in some ways with a market that's ridiculously hot, that we forget that it's not usual to kind of put a property up and have it you know, occupied in like a week. You know, sometimes you're holding a property for 60 days trying to find a tenant or a tenant buyer. Sometimes it's longer than that if you're not really doing what you're supposed to do or it's priced too much or whatever. Okay? So realize you probably need to have some holding costs or marketing costs in order to acquire your tenant or tenant buyer and be prepared for that. So can you do this with no money? Maybe, but I mean, you, I, I listed out all these reasonable expenses for you. I, I don't think there's any on here that you're like, well, you just made that one up, James. I mean, these are like legit costs you have, right? So And I'm not even putting in here reserves, right? So I don't know. I, I think... I think a lot of people are attracted to creative financing because they're like, you know, I could do this with no money, but I don't know if that's true. Can you do it with less than 20% down if you're kind of comparing it to putting 20% down to buy a, you know, a property, a traditional buy and hold property? Sure. You know, is it going to be 5% of the purchase price? I think you could start pushing toward 5%, you know, with some of these costs. Um, You know, we can get there. I'll show you some assumptions I have a little bit later, but maybe it is still cheaper than doing like a nomad strategy or. You know, is, is it going to be three and a half percent? I don't know, maybe it's better to do a three and a half percent FHA loan to do that, okay? Anyone have questions on the financing stuff? Is that helpful? Is that like a surprise to folks? Not what you were expecting when you came in? Everyone knew this? You've heard me talk about it before already? Okay. It's this fine line between, I don't want to discourage anybody, right? Like I want to, I want to be encouraging and tell you, you could do this. I mean, you go get advice from an attorney, and you, you can go out there and you can do these deals, and I'm gonna show you some numbers that you're gonna be motivated to do it, right? Because you're gonna see the numbers, and you're like, holy crap, this is awesome. But to go think that it's awesome and that you're gonna be able to do it with no money, I'm not so sure that those are compatible thoughts. And so I'd rather be realistic and have you go into it knowing that you're gonna to need to put some money into this and get it working than, um, than to think that you're gonna be able to do it with no money down and be really frustrated when you find deals that all require some money and you're spinning your wheels and not able to get any traction. Yeah, question. So yeah. some of this creative financing methods, let's say you were combining this with Nomadic, yep. and you can only get 10 like conventional loans. Would these be considered against those loans? Or would this be kind of depending on how you write it up? How does it count? Yeah. So it's a really, really good question. So the question for the microphone is, if you're going to do creative financing, do those loans count on your um, record for being able to get additional loans? So if you're limited to getting 10 loans, buying traditional you know, um, like buying whole properties, non owner-occupant. For the owner-occupant ones, you're not limited to 10, by the way. Yeah, but for like traditional 20% down investor loan, a lot of times you're limited to 10, then you got to switch over to some type of portfolio loan um, in order to do that. So do these creative financing ones count? And it's weird because some lenders will tell you, absolutely, especially if they appear in your tax return, right? They'll show up in your tax return and you're like, I'm responsible for this loan. I've been taking the you know, deductions for it and everything. And they'll say, you know, this sort of counts. Other lenders will say, hey, if it's not on your social security number, it doesn't count for you. And so some, some investors will actually buy these in the names of LLCs or something like that. And they'll have the LLC be the owner of it. It's not on their social security number. It's not a loan on their name and it'll be on there. It'll be on the LLC's tax return and stuff like that. But you're going to want to check with the lender to find out. But it's this weird gray area as far as that goes. Now, if it's owner financing, I think that's pretty clear, right? If it's owner financing and it's in your name, I think that's pretty clear. If you're buying something like subject two, that starts getting a little bit weirder to do it. But you don't, one of the great things about structuring these is it doesn't have to be you individually that's buying the properties. It could be an LLC or your IRA or your 401k or something like that um, in order to be able to acquire these properties. And then you're sort of in this area where do those count or not um, for, for stuff, yeah. So I wish I could answer you directly and tell you definitively, yes, it's like this. But I think it's going to be how a lender looks at it. Um, and I've seen, I've seen lenders do weird things with commercial loans too, where they will not count commercial loans against you, and then other ones will want to. So I, it may be just th- that particular underwriter, and yeah. If there's a lender listening to this, please reach out and let me know what the thoughts are, because I don't know the answer to that, and I'm not a lender. Does that not answer your question appropriately? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. good. Any other questions about the money? All right, cool. All right, so these are the three slides on marketing. Um, I'm going to do an entire separate two-hour class on motivated seller marketing, how to find off-market deals. Um, but this is this is what you get tonight. So uh, motivated sellers for lazy and poor folks. So lazy methods, more time than more money than time. It's easier to scale up in size. Now, you can decide to spend three times as much marketing. You've scaled the three times. It's hard to work three times as much when you're already working full time. Um, You sift and sort for great deals. So you have all this marketing out there. It's bringing deals in using some type of paid marketing methodology, where you have deals coming in. And then you sift and sort based on the deals coming in. There have been times when I probably stupidly overspent on marketing and had more deals coming in than I could possibly handle. And there were more people I could even call back. I was like so busy that people were calling in. I wasn't calling people back. And I told my assistant at the time, I'm like, look, I'm only going to call back people that call twice. So, my sifting criteria was if they didn't call twice, I'm not calling them back. That was like my criteria for calling people back. And then for a very brief period of time, because this all went out at the same time and I was just really swamped and overwhelmed, I would start just doing like lowball offers on the phone as a pre-screening call, which is not what you want to do, but i basically say, look, if you want to sell me your property, these are the metrics I'm using to analyze your deal. Are you interested in that? And if they said yes, great, going out and buying that house, right? But I don't recommend doing that. I don't think it's a good idea. But you can, if you decide to put out enough marketing where you're coming in, you're sifting and sorting for great deals by doing it that way. Uh, Poor methods, so that was lazy lazy methods. Poor methods, more time than money, and willing to invest the time to find motivated sellers. They tend to be time intensive type activities, therefore harder to scale. And you tend to want to work or overwork every lead, which leads you to try to make non-deals or bad deals into deals. So the tendency when you're doing the poor marketing is you're putting out so much effort, so much manual labor, that a seller who is motivated calls you and you do everything you can to try to make this deal work even though it's just not a deal. And I think that's the tendency when you have limited deal flow and you get frustrated because you're like, I've only had this one call in the last two months. I've been putting in effort every day, doing 10 hours a day of, you know, door knocking or cold calling or, you know, replying to ads of people that are for sale by owners or whatever you're doing. That's kind of like these poor marketing methods. And then finally, someone says, hey, I'm potentially interested. And it's really not a deal. The reason why they're motivated is because it's not a deal. It's like something you should not buy. But like you try to look at it from every angle, you're like, I must not be looking at this right because this is the only one I've got. So it's got to be a deal. There's, you know, like the old joke about, you know, there's got to be a pony in this, you know, thing somewhere, right? Like you're trying to find something to make it work, but it's not. Okay. Now there can be some overlap between the two. For example, some people might consider bandit signs, the little signs you stick out in the in the the medians of of the roads, or um, the, the neutral grounds for people that are living in the areas where they call them neutral grounds. But you kind of put them there and they say, you know, we buy ugly houses or something like that. So some people would consider those more of like a lazy method. Some people will consider them more of a poor method because they're out there like manually putting them in the ground. and I don't know, it's sort of like in the gray area for that. Okay, So let's talk about some lazy methods. Lazy methods, again, are the ones where you're being lazy, you're willing to spend money. So billboards and bench signs, car signs, like the magnetic signs you put on your car or car wraps, uh, any direct mail, postcards, yellow letters, handwritten yellow letters, um, probate letters—all examples of direct mail. Uh, websites, pay-per-click, where you you actually pay you know, Google or some of the other search engines that when someone searches for a my home fast" in whatever your city is, that you come up, your website comes up, and every time someone clicks on your ad, you you pay a fee to them. Uh, voice or text broadcasts, where you know you're doing outbound voice voicemail blaster that says, "Hey, uh, I'm interested in buying your home. You know, give me a call." And then lots you know, of voice broadcasts or texts that say, you know, hey, I'm interested in buying your home. Um, you know, text me back or call me at this number. Um, you know, those are variations of lazy methods. Uh, newspaper advertising, although newspapers are near, not nearly effective as they once were. Although you, know, you probably could find like, one that does work. Uh, radio and television ads and uh, Yellow Pages, which again, who uses the Yellow Pages these days? Um, but I wanted to be comprehensive, and this is an old list that I used to teach in a, a class a while ago. Uh, any questions on lazy methods? Poor methods, uh, banded signs, those little yellow signs or white signs you put sort of in the, the median or neutral ground and kind of says we buy houses or we take over payments and buy a house in any condition, cash for house, cash for keys, stuff, stuff like that. Uh, business cards, you know, you're putting out business cards, hand them out, uh, people that you meet, uh, contacting for sale by owners, getting on the phone and dialing, going door to door, you know, stuff like that, door knocking. Uh, door-to-door flyers, door hangers, and sticky notes, any type of door-to-door, gorilla-type marketing, I consider that more of a poor method. Driving for dollars, looking around for properties that uh, are obvious in need of repair, or they've got you know 37 old newspapers laying in the driveway, or 57 pizza ha- hangers on their front door. It's obvious no one lives there, and the, the house is abandoned or something. You, know, you drive around looking for houses like that, and they try to track down the seller, contact them, and ask them if they're interested in selling their house, that's a strategy. Uh, flyers and the free flyer method, so you could put out door-to-door flyers, I think that was already on there. The free flyer method is, you can go and contact three other businesses in the area and have them all agree to pay for a half page of a flyer, um, and you can charge them one-third of the cost for the flyer so that it covers all the printing for you, and then you go around and do door-to-door where you put up all the flyers, or you'd have them cover a third of the cost of the printing and someone to deliver them for you, and you basically get the fourth spot on that Two-page thing uh, for free, so it's a way for you to have an unlimited budget for doing marketing, where you're getting three other businesses—you know, the pizza company, um, you know, the plumber guy or AC guy or you know something else, the weight loss guy—and they're all like on there and they're trying to sell their product or service, and you're one of the four on their advertising, and you do as much free advertising as you want to in that. That's what the free flyer method is, uh, and then networking—you know, telling people, you know, what do you do? I, I buy investment properties. You know, someone is uh, needing to sell their property, I can help them sell their properties, that sort of stuff. Elevator speech. Um, Sometimes you can find properties through real estate agents. I have bought properties creatively through real estate agents. It's hard to do. You can do it though. Uh, Posting ads, you know, going on sites like Craigslist or something like that in order to find uh, potential deals there. Uh, Promotional clothing, you know, we buy houses type shirts or things like that. Uh, Real estate wholesalers and bird dogs, you can find deals that way. And then your website, if you're willing to do search engine optimization, write content or do social media marketing, you could find deals that way as well. So those are all like more of the poor methods where you're putting in more labor in order to find deals. Does that make sense? You guys understand the difference between lazy methods and poor methods and why I differentiate them and kind of how they work and scalability and stuff? Good. Cool. Credit required. So do you need credit in order to buy properties creatively? Strict question. Because you have to negotiate with sellers. So really, it's not automatic that the seller is not gonna wanna check your credit. I think that a lot of sellers, especially sellers who are motivated, are not gonna need to check your credit. But I think that there are some sellers who are not motivated, and they own their property free and clear, and they may be a good candidate for owner financing, who may say, you know, yeah, I'm willing to owner financing for you, how's your credit score? And you tell them it's good, you wanna check my credit? And they're like, yes, I do. It's a requirement for me to do owner financing with you, and they're gonna wanna check your credit, and so that becomes a requirement. if you don't have good credit, you can't do those deals. Or bring in a partner. That was pause for a drink. Um, so transactions tend to be negotiated with the seller. So credit required is often a negotiation between you and the seller. Uh, there is a greater chance of finding options that do not require you to have personal credit with creative financing directly with a seller, especially if you're helping a seller solve a problem, if they're motivated in some form and they've got an issue that you can solve. Okay? Um, This also opens up that since you don't need your personal credit to do it, you can buy in the name of an LLC or company if you want to structure things that way, um, or trust, or your IRA or your 401k, which we'll get to here in a second. Any questions on credit required? Cool. So skills required. So what do you need to know, what do you need to be able to do in order to do creative financing? And I think this list is a lot longer than a lot of other strategies because there's a lot more moving pieces. So the primary skills required for creative financing are, number one, you gotta find deals. So a lot of times that means you need to have marketing skills. Because these, this is not like, you know, you're trying to do traditional buy and hold, you're looking in the MLS and all you gotta do is keep looking at the stuff until you find one that works where you run the numbers. Now you gotta go out there and actually get deals. You gotta create motivated sellers. You gotta go find them and identify them and have them call you or call on them. So finding deals, you need marketing skills. You still need to be able to analyze deals and analyzing deals for creative financing, it adds an additional layer of complexity. It's not something you can't learn, but it's not as straightforward as just, I'm going to get a 20% down loan. Do I like the cash on cash? Do I like the internal rate of return? You know, am I looking at those numbers? It's a little bit more nuanced than that, of how you structure it, how you run the numbers. Once you've done it a few times, it's pretty easy. So you need to be able to do a deal analysis. Um, in Some cases, you'll need to do rehab estimating, going into a property and finding out how much it's going to cost to get it ready to rent or a tenant buyer. Um, you need to do cash flow estimating figuring out what the rent's going to be on that and doing those calculations and a lot of cases you may need to estimate value to find out what you're going to sell the property for to your tenant buyer and what you're going to be able to buy it for and is that a good enough deal and is that reasonable will the property appraise when your tenant buyer goes to get a loan on it and cash you out and so i think you need to be able to estimate values of properties if you're doing traditional buy and hold you may not need to do that at all so it's an additional skill deal structuring i kind of talked about that already but you need to be able to structure these deals figure out how you're going to structure what type of creative financing you're going to offer what type of profit spread you need, what type of cash flow you need, all those different things as part of deal structuring. In some cases, you may want to go raise money. So possibly raising money becomes more of an issue with this. You know, I I think you could probably list that in a lot of different strategies, but I think it's even more appropriate in this particular one, is uh, possibly raising money as a a possible skill. Uh, And then selling or filling the property, either selling it outright, or putting a tenant buyer in the property, or putting a tenant in the property or doing a short-term rental. Whatever you decide to do as your exit strategy, you need to be able to do that part of that skill too, or managing someone who's willing to do that. Uh, Property management, while the tenant or the tenant buyer is in the property, you need to be able to do that skill, and it can vary. The skill is either you doing it yourself and all the skills needed to do that, or hiring somebody else, like a property manager, and then being able to manage the property manager to do that. The rehab itself, you might be doing the work yourself, you might be managing subcontractors, you might be managing a GC, general contractor. So you'll need those skills too. And then this is a, it's deceptive, right? But I think this is a sales job. You know, being able to go out and, quote, sell the seller on why your solution is a good solution for them and talk to them about the pros and cons and the benefits of doing that and how it's structured. And, and that's sales skills. So you need to be able to go sell the seller. So it's a, it's a sales job to do this. And then, of course, once you get the property, you know, selling it to the tenant or the tenant buyer, I think that's a sales job as well. So th- despite what a lot of folks think, this is, this is a sales job. And then you need to do all these other skills on top of that. Okay. Any questions on skills required for doing credit financing? Nothing? I got no questions. It's Taylor? Yeah. Yeah. So Taylor just said, for the microphone, because it's hard to pick up on the mic, uh, Taylor just said that if you're going to be contacting sellers, it's important to have a CRM, Customer Relationship Management software, that keeps track of who you called, what you said, um, you know, information about them, the situation, um, last time you called them, things of that nature. And then you could go and start looking at key performance indicators, what he call KPIs, in order to determine, you know, what your cost is to generate a lead, what your cost is to, uh, you know, close on a deal, what your cost is to put a tenant buyer in the property, and all those things of those nature. Um, I don't know if I'll cover it in the marketing class, but we do have a, I do have a class I taught before, and I have a spreadsheet that allows you to analyze the entire profitability of the entire business model for doing off-market deals, where we talk about all the different steps, the stages of acquiring properties, how much time and how much money you spent in each stage. And then um, on the output side, like what the profit was on that deal and how much time and everything was spent and, and those things too. And you can go ahead and change the inputs of all the different marketing you have and it will trickle out and do the, um, it'll do like calculations to show like if you go and spend $2,000 on postcards instead of $1,000, like how that kind of impacts the number of calls you make and the number of uh, credibility packs you sent out and the number of motivated seller presentations you've made and follow-up calls and closings and then all that how many deals you end up with and so it does all those calculations for you and it shows you your overall profitability and if you haven't done that before and you're you're really going to do this business model i would strongly recommend it because it kind of gives you some insight into how to do it so thanks taylor uh, any questions on skills cool stability so um i went and looked up his name shane parrish from farnham street after like four classes not known his name i feel embarrassed but so I went and looked up his name. So he wrote a blog post and he talked about this idea of uh, things that are actively or passively stable. And the examples he used in the blog post was uh, a boat. A boat, if you are, if you have a, if you're on a boat and you don't do anything, you're not going to drown, right? The boat's just going to kind of bob up and down. So that is passively stable. It's stable. You don't have to be actively doing anything to remain stable, stable there. But a uh, jet fighter is actively stable. If you don't take your hands off the controls, you don't do anything, a jet fighter, you're going to crash. You're going to die. Right, and so the idea is that are things actively stable or passively stable. And real estate, in general, I think is actively stable. If you don't do anything to your properties, if you don't like pay any bills or anything like that, um, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to lose the property. They're eventually going to take over the property from you for a non-payment of uh, property taxes. But on the spectrum, though, there's like certain strategies that are more actively stable than others. And so I think creative financing is a very active. Um, type of strategy where you have to be doing things with the properties otherwise you're gonna get a lot of trouble so some strategies are more active than others for example subject to lease options lease purchases are more active in my opinion than owner financing um, kind of stuff in in both cases you have to do stuff but I think there's a lot more activity with subject to lease options lease purchases um, as examples of that and then the traditional examples I've used in other classes to kind of describe this is amortizing mortgages versus balloons and interest-only loans. An amortizing mortgage, if you just make the payments for the 30 years or 15 years or whatever it is, the mortgage will eventually pay off with a uh, balloon or an interest-only loan. If you don't do something when that balloon comes due, um, there's a problem. You know, you're going to have a, a real issue with that. So I think on the scale of those, you know, one of them is much more active than the other. And then like buy and hold versus flips or lease options or BRRRR, buy and hold I think is less active they're both active, but less active than you know, doing a flip, or doing a lease option, or doing a burr. OK, any questions on stability? Cool. Scalability. So how scalable is creative financing? At first blush, you may think to yourself, hey, you know, with a relatively small amount into the deal, I could do an unlimited number of these. It's infinitely scalable. I'm not limited to do 10 loans. Maybe, right? I think one of the issues with scalability with creative financing is deal flow. Are you able to find enough deals to make this work? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, and, and to a lesser degree, the down payments and reserves you need in order to do these deals, that's going to become a big factor when I run numbers here in a little bit. You're going to see that if we actually reduce the amount we need in reserves, we do a lot more deals. Um, so you can do that. So spending enough time on marketing to find these unusual deals, finding enough quality deals because not all of them are deals, uh, having down payments, reserves, money for repairs, will mean more possible deals. So the more you have access to resources, the more deals you might get that you could possibly do. Otherwise, you may have to wholesale them or abandon them. Uh, and so from that perspective, it's harder to scale, slower acquisition speed. But it can be done with relatively small amount of capital that can usually be reused after each deal. It's usually delayed, but you, know, you buy a property. Four years later, the tenant buyer cashes you out. You get all your money back. Now you're really flush. You can go do more deals. Um, certain exit strategies, like lease options, may help provide some replenishment of cash option fees from tenant buyers, as an example, in the short term. So what I mean by that is, a lot of times when you buy a property, you put all the money into acquire the deal, the marketing, the closing costs, your holding costs, your reserves, whatever it is, and then you go out and you find a tenant buyer. When you find your tenant buyer, a lot of times your tenant buyer is going to give you an option fee themselves. They're a tenant buyer. So they're, they're a tenant wanting to lease option the property from you. So they may give you $500, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, $500, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, whatever it is that you negotiate with them in order to have the option to be able to buy the property. And that usually does get applied toward them purchasing it, but it's money you can use right away. Right? So it's money that you can actually get a refund or a rebate, and sometimes even more than you used to acquire the deal, but I, I would think that that would be exceptional, that don't rely on that as a rule. But you might get some money back right away in order to fund your business going forward. Make sense? Okay. Uh, let's see. Since it requires a lot of manual labor, it's typically not considered a scaling wealth building strategy directly. A lot of creative financing and real estate entrepreneurship is a sales job. I mean, you've got to go out there and you've got to sell the seller. You've got to put in effort and time and, and do that. Uh, many will use profits from creative financing and real estate entrepreneurship to then acquire other assets like stocks or bonds or REITs or flips or rental properties or whatever it is to then scale up. So they kind of use this as a growth funding strategy in order to be able to do other things that scale a little bit more easily and allow you to do less active work. Any questions on scalability? Cool. Risk exposure. I think this is going to surprise a lot of folks as well. So overall, I would categorize creative financing as a high risk rating. High risk. Why? Because I think it has all the risks of a lot of other strategies plus some additional ones you don't have elsewhere. So for example, because we're putting so little in the deal, we have amplified returns. If you're positive and and the returns are going well, those are amplified in a positive direction, those are good. But because they're amplified, if it goes against you, it's amplified negatively. You could put $3,000 into a deal and lose $10,000. Okay, so it's amplified both ways. And that's from putting small down payments into the deals. There's also an increased likelihood of negative cash flow. Whenever you put a small amount down or you take over debt in a property where the the original seller had very little down in the deal, you have a increased chance of having negative cash flow on a property. And so we like to refer to these as deferred down payments. If you had put 20% down or 25% down, they would be positive cash flow and you wouldn't have negative cash flow. But since the original owner only put 5% down and a year later they're selling it to you and now you're taking over the debt, maybe they will only have 5% equity. So it's like you put 5% down. So you could have negative cash flow on this. And they may still have PMI and things of that nature. So whenever you have small or no down payments, a lot of times you're going to have negative cash flow. There's also a limited selection of the deals that come across your desk. It's not like you're going out and you're picking the most primo, the best possible property you could buy that has the most amazing cash flow. No, you're putting out marketing and like one person comes forward who's motivated and that may not be the property that you would have otherwise picked as a positive cash flowing deal. It may not have really good like price to rent economics. It may not be the best rental property, but they're willing to sell it to you creatively. So it may not be a deal that you would otherwise have picked if you had a choice of everything in the MLS. And so for that reason, it may be more negative cash flow. Okay. Uh, it can be slightly worse financing or interest rates than what you could get today depending on where the market is i mean imagine for a minute you know we were at reverse market where we didn't have all these really low interest rates we had really high interest rates and in all this stuff from two or three or four or five years ago and those are where most of your motivated sellers are coming from and now interest rates are at two or three or four percent but those other ones were at five or six or seven Well, they could be worse deals than what you could get today if you went out there. We don't happen to be in that situation. And right now, I think we're in sort of like a a golden period or the the very beginning of a golden period where interest rates are much, much higher. And all the rates from the last few years are all amazing. They're all great loans to take over. Right? But it could be the other way around, depending on when you're listening to this or or kind of when you're doing the the market. Uh, Marketing money. So the marketing to buy and the marketing to sell I mean, that's a risk. You're putting that money out there, and sometimes it's not effective. Sometimes your marketing message is not resonating with the marketplace, and you might put out money and not get responses. You may put out labor and not get responses. Often, less money risk compared to traditional buy and hold, so less risky in that regard. So you may go out there and spend 1% of the purchase price, just as an example. Let's say you put out $4,000 in marketing in order to try to acquire a deal. You're like, $4,000 in marketing? That seems really, really high. Well, you might pay a point in order to originate a loan which would be like 1% of the loan amount. So that may be $4,000 by itself. And that's just one of the expenses. So to think you're going to spend $4,000 on marketing and not have to pay some of the costs in order to acquire this property, you know, like acquire a property in another way, like traditional buy and hold, where you have to do a loan origination fee and some points and some you know, closing costs, which you have some closing costs as well, but maybe closing costs for the loan, you know, all these other expenses, $4,000 might be a little bit cheaper is what I'm trying to point out to you. Okay, uh, You might have possible rehab risk. You didn't know that there was mold, or that they were smoking meth. Um, you know, it could be a surprise. So you have some of the rehab risks possibly in there too. Uh, you have interest rate risk while you're creatively financing. So before you can sell the property to your tenant buyer and get out, or before you can go refinance yourself because you want to keep the property, you don't want to sell it anymore, you know, interest rates may rise during that time. So you have some interest rate risk while you're doing that. Prices can decline during ownership. You, know, you bought a property at a 5% discount, and uh, property values went down you know, since you acquired it. That's a risk you have. And rents could go down. You have a, a potential for rents going down as well while you own the property. So I think you have those risks. I mean, these are not unique risks to this strategy, but they are risks of this strategy. And I think you have some that are unique to this, which I'll get to here, um, but they're like not all unique to this particular one. right? Some of these price decline during ownership or rent decline, I and mean, I think that's any type of buy and hold. In some cases, you might have your credit at risk. If you're going to get owner financing and they want you to personally sign and personally guarantee the loan, now you have your credit at risk for doing that. If you're doing loan assumption, that's credit at risk, right? You went and you got the formal assumption of the loan from the the, uh, lender, I mean, now your credit's at risk. Uh, Let's see. Your reputation at risk. If you tell the seller, look, I'll make payments on your underlying loan subject to, and you don't do that, that's a problem. Uh, That's your reputation. And then you have all the typical tenant and property management risks. So all the ones you'd normally have buying a property and renting it out. And then you have the risk of loans being called due, which I think is relatively unique to this. If you're buying a property subject to, they could call the loan due. And you've got to figure out what you're going to do if that happens. Any questions on risk exposure? I have a yeah. It may not be exactly related to this, but would be kind of, um, so are assumable loans a thing anymore still? My parents did yeah. this in the 80s. So like yeah. I just feel like now there's an opportunity of people who had 2% or 3% loans. Yes. So the question is, are there assumable loans right now? Yeah, <laughs> FHA loans are assumable. Only certain types of loans, is that basically what it is? Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, and they're qualifying assumable, so you need to qualify, right. okay. and so you'll take over. There, what's gone is non-qualifying assumable loans, okay. where you, anyone can come in and just you know yeah, just sign something. like, when the 80s, in the 80s, when interest rates were so crazy, I asked my parents how they ever bought a house, and it was because they yes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a buddy. Uh, he got one of his buyers to assume a VA loan with like a two point three percent interest rate. Yep. Was just a couple weeks ago. So yeah. Did he was Did he have VA benefits? Uh, yeah. yeah. So like the the guy had VA benefits on the loan was a VA loan. Yep. So he was able, That's why he was able to assume the VA. Loan. So just certain types of loans. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just was never. I never even heard of that. Yep. Stuff, cool. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're qualifying assumables, so you need to qualify, and a lot of times you need to pay fee. So the bank's going to ask you to do a paperwork fee in order to do that, whatever, whatever that is. Any other questions? Question. Yeah. It seems unlikely in this environment because of high prices yeah. that there would be good subject to candidates. Is what do you true? mean? Well, so the question the question for, for the microphone. In their house, so it'd be kind of crazy for them to walk away. Well, I guess if they lost their job and they have no money, they could still keep their credit Yes. Yeah, so, so Scott's question is in an environment like this, where we've seen massive amounts of appreciation um, and people probably have a lot of equity in their property for someone to be able to just allow you to take over their loan subject to seems unlikely. And that's not quite true because what they may say is, look, if you give me the $30,000 in equity I have, you could take over my loan. And so you might be, you might be able to take over, more things if you have some money to put down and be able to acquire that and it may still make sense for you to do that you could think to yourself look do i want to go and put 20 percent down to buy another property today and get six percent or do i want to do you know thirty thousand dollars and be able to take over 3.25 and you may still want to do that so yes there are still options to do it um, i do agree with you though that the more equity they have the more creative you need to get in structuring that the chance of them saying hey i'll walk away and give you give you and i'm using that in school it's 20 of my equity just because that's my loan balance unlikely right i think you can in some cases capture some equity you know they're willing to trade some of their equity for the solution to their problem but 20 percent maybe probably not though right i think you're more likely to be able to negotiate something where you're buying at a discount like i'll, I'll give you an example i'm going to get to this here in a second but imagine for a minute that you go in there and you offer somebody um, to be able to take over their loan, make, start making payments on their loan, um, at a 6% discount. Well, if they were going to go sell their property with a real estate agent, they'd be walking away from 6% sales tra- transaction costs, right? So it seems pretty easy for them to say, well, if I don't do a deal with you, and I go list it with a real estate agent, I'm going to net 94%. And with you, I'm netting 94%. And it's going to be done tomorrow. They may prefer to do that, right? So and 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 then so what's the difference between ninety-four percent and ninety-three percent? Not much, right? Especially since the value is not exact. What's the difference between ninety-three and ninety-two? Yeah, and especially if they need work on the property. And they or maybe they don't know the value of what it is right now. Maybe they think it's a little bit lower, a little bit higher. I mean, it's hard to say. And you have unrealistic sellers who think that their property's worth, you know, fifty thousand dollars more than the one that sold across the street who has, you know, backs to a park and has all sorts of crazy stuff and, and theirs doesn't. And they think that theirs is worth that. But then there's sellers that are like, you know, I don't think my house is worth quite that much. And the inefficient real estate market is part of what allows us to, to do some of this stuff. Okay. Yeah. So now, I know I'm not um, at all well versed in legal things. Yeah. And Neither after, am I. I'm not an attorney. I know, I know you would talk to an attorney and you try to have this written up really well. But one of the things that I feel like keeps running in my mind is like, yeah. what if the seller dies and you're the person by doing the, buying the creative? be written in some way but it, I just feel like sometimes things like things get weird. <laughs> like, yeah. This seems like an additional risk of like you're not going through an institution. Your loan is not held by some bank where it doesn't really matter who the person is. You now have this like individual entity that Yeah, Rachel, their I family comes involved and then there's probate. I don't yeah, Rachel, I'm pretty paranoid too, and I come up with all sorts of like weird situations that happen. But, but honestly, that's, that is one I don't actually have a problem with because my understanding, and I've I had, a, I had a, a client of mine die while they were selling a house with me. And what happens is the paperwork is written such that um, the obligations they had get passed on to their heirs. So it's already pre-existing in the paperwork that I was using. To do that it may, and I would assume yours would too if your attorney did it. So the obligation for the owner financier, whatever you had agreed to them, is now an obligation of their heirs. And it's not like they could say, we've changed our mind, we're not doing that. They may be motivated to get out of the deal, and you may be able to negotiate paying it off at a discount or some other benefit to you, but it's, it's not like, I, I don't personally have that one worry. I have a lot of other worries, and you and I could probably get together and talk about all the crazy crap that could, that could go on in the world and, and how bad things go, but that's not one you and I share. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So sure that's not a problem. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that one. Well you're like in probate, it's like this person has a car you inherit a car and you can't sell it for six months because they didn't have a will and it gets confusing. Yeah, Rachel's talking about some weird probate situation with selling car stuff. I, I don't know anything about that one, but I okay. yeah. I don't have that worry, but you know, this is like the list you make for your attorney, right? The questions you come up with, you like list all the ones you have. And then when he gives you an answer, you're like, oh, well, that opens up like 94 other questions I got for you, Mr. Attorney. Mrs. Attorney, let me, let me go down that list. And you just have that list, right? And I think you go down there and you feel comfortable. And I don't think, I don't think there are many things in this world that are like risk-free. Right? You, 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 you decide like where you want to live on the risk continuum. Do you want to be in a spot where you're OK with being loosey-goosey with your paperwork and not consulting an attorney with every question? Or are you like, hey, look, I got a lot to lose. I'm going to go talk to an attorney, and I'm not going to do anything that I don't actually really, really know the answer to without talking with my attorney before I make a decision. So I think there's kind of a spectrum of things in that nature. And honestly, attorneys have different opinions on stuff. Right? If you experience this, where you go talk to one attorney, and they tell you, black and white, it's this. And then you go talk to another and they're like, well, not really. It's that most of the time, but it can be this or this or this. And so I think that happens too. All right, any other questions? Yeah, so what Taylor just said is that it, the amount of money you need to spend on marketing can vary market to market. I also think it varies like market conditions to market conditions. Like in a the last three years where a, a seller could list their property in the MLS and get 30 offers on it, you know, 20 of them above list price, that's a very different expense to getting a seller to call you than a market where properties are sitting on the market for six months and they're not selling and... You know, so I think market conditions come into play, and you know, the, I think partly the market you're in has an impact on that, too. Um, if you're trying to buy, like, for, for the recording, we live in a, a market where there's this really nice part of Fort Collins called Old Town Fort Collins, and you know, there's like a really nice row of houses where they're all really expensive and no one really wants to move from there, and it's all really in high demand. If you're doing marketing to try to find a deal there, I mean, that's kind of hard, right? Kind of tricky. Can you find them there? Sure, but I mean, you're, you're stacking the deck against you trying to find properties and that thing. Okay, any questions on risk exposure? I actually might, might get close on time, this is really weird. All right, so profit speed. So how quickly, what's the size of the profit, and how quickly do you see profit on these? So. If you guys haven't seen this before, I'll do the short version of this. It's in a lot of the other classes, but these are the uh, five areas of return for rental properties. There are really four areas of return for the rental, and then the return you get from the reserves you have sitting on the sideline. So appreciation, the tendency for property values to go up over a period of time. Cash flow, That's uh, all the income you have coming in from the property, including rents and stuff like that, minus all the expenses, property taxes, insurance, maintenance, vacancy, property management, if I didn't mention that again, capital expenses, like all those things. So you subtract all the expenses out. Whatever's left over is your cash flow. Tax benefits is usually the cash flow from depreciation. So when you rent the property out, you get this depreciation benefit. It's a phantom expense given to you by the government on your tax return. That means you pay less in income tax. And so whatever the amount you have to pay less in income tax is what we consider cash flow from depreciation for owning this property. And then how much you pay down on the loan. That's debt pay down. So those four areas of return plus the area you get for the return you're getting on your reserves gives you a total amount that you're earning. So what's the like typical size you might see on this? when you buy a property creatively, a lot of times you're buying it at a small discount or a big discount, depending on what you can negotiate. And so sometimes you'll get this forced appreciation. The amount you bought in year one that you got as a discount, plus in addition to that, whatever the appreciation is while you own the property. So if property values are going up, whatever it is, 3% a year, and you own it for four years. That's you know, 3% the first year, 3% compounded the second year, 3% compounded the third year, 3% compounded the fourth year. You know, it's 12% plus, because you have some compounding in there. Uh, over that period of time. Plus, if you bought it at a 5% discount, you know, you're know you talking about 17% or so um, amounts you made on this property over, that, over those four years. Then you had whatever cash flow you did. In a lot of cases, since you're buying these properties creatively, and a lot of times they have high loan-to-value loans on them, and they may not be ideal rental properties to begin with, sometimes your cash flow will be negative. Your tax benefits are usually gonna be positive, and they usually offset some of your cash flow. Uh, and then debt pay down, depending on the price of the property and the interest rates, the lower the interest rate, the more you pay down in debt, just in general, uh, for the same amount of uh, property there. So you combine all those together, you're talking about relatively big sums uh, when you're doing it. It's not all upfront though, right? So like as far as like when this happens, a lot of times you'll get like an option fee from your tenant buyer when the tenant buyer comes to you and they're like, okay, I would like to rent your property and I'd like the option to be able to buy it from you from a year or two or three or four down the road. Um, A lot of times they'll give you an option fee upfront. So whatever you negotiate could be, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, whatever you negotiate with them in order to get, but you get a kind of a pop there at the beginning for that. And then you get ongoing cash flow from the rent on the property. Sometimes that's negative. Sometimes it's not. Um, and then you're going to get the big pop at the end when they cash you out or you sell the property. And so that's when the, usually the majority of the money comes in from doing these creative financing. i make sure I covered everything I wanted to. Yeah, so rents and option fees or security deposits are typically paid in advance. I think I talked about that. Um, the, the paper return from forced depreciation when you're buying at a discount. I talked about that. Okay, I think I covered everything I wanted to cover on that. Any questions on the uh, profit speed and size of profit? Cool. Finding deals. Most common methods for finding deals for sell-by-owners. And by for sell-by-owners, I mean two major groups. For sell-by-owners that are already actively marketing their property, these are the guys that are they know they're for sale by owners. They're putting their property out there for sale and they're trying to sell it themselves. And then you've got all the hidden for sale by owners, the ones that don't necessarily have their property marketed. They could be just, I would sell my property or they're motivated and they've, they're unwilling or unable to take action on their things. They've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. So with those guys, you need to actually spend money on marketing and or do networking in order to find those. So those are the majority of the ways you're going to find creative financing deals. Of course, can you find a a property that you could buy subject to in the MLS. I've done it before, it's really rare. I think I've only done it once. I want one property from the MLS subject to. Um, there are some people that teach buying like lease options uh, from the MLS, but it's usually a strategy for properties that have been sitting on the market for a long time. Um, in a very slow moving market. So, you know, this is around circa 2008 or so when we had a lot of inventory and properties were not moving very quickly. And one of the solutions that investors would go to is they'd go to properties that were listed in the MLS and they would say, look, I know you had your property listed for sale. It's been on the market for six months. You guys haven't had any offers. How about I do a lease option? You stop the bleeding, especially a property that's vacant. I'll stop the bleeding. I'll come in here and I'll make payments on it. And then I'll agree to buy it from you for this price a year or two or three down the road. And I think for some sellers, that was, a, that was a good solution to their problem. And I think if we got into a soft market again, I think that could come back. You know, with as hot as the market has been for the last, whatever it is, I think the probability, you can still find them, but the probability of finding those is lower uh, with a really hot market. And then I think really occasionally, especially with like a loan assumption, you may be able to find like real estate owned um, I, right now, there's so few properties that have been foreclosed on. I mean, we think we're literally at all-time lows. I was looking at some stats on this recently. But uh, eventually, that comes back around. You know? There'll be some people that have foreclosures, and the bank will take back properties. And some banks actually keep their own properties on their books, and they call it real estate owned. And you may be able to go to a bank and get them to agree to sell you a property. And they may be willing to do some type of loan assumption or, or owner financing, but it's from a bank, so it's really more traditional financing. But I think you could find some deals that way. And then wholesalers you know imagine like you're out there but you don't have the money to do a deal but they're a whole they decide to come and wholesale um, the deal to you and you have the money to do it so you can find people that are like you out there trying to find deals that they can't take down themselves or unwilling to take down if it doesn't meet their criteria any questions on finding deals sweet so to analyze deals you can use the spreadsheet realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet it's the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, that's the humble name for it. Um, and so you can go ahead and just use that for doing your rental property analysis when you're buying a property. Just put in you know, what you're putting down on the property, what you're gonna get for income on the property, and um, you can do all the analysis you need to for that. Any questions on analyzing deals? I probably need to do like a class on how to analyze deals, like how to fill out the spreadsheet, right? Or no one needs that? No one needs that? Wow, okay, I won't do it then. Sweet, save me a night. All right, market conditions, really no one needs it, huh? That's good. Market conditions. So, and ideally, markets where you can find properties with flexible sellers willing to accept creative financing. I I think that's the definition of the markets that work work for this. Um, Markets with at least decent demand. Sometimes you can find deals, but it's really hard to liquidate the deals, and that's why you can find them. So, I think you have to kind of balance those out. You need to find a, a deal that's good enough where you can actually make the deals work on the exit side. It is challenging in markets where sellers have lots of options. If a seller can go list their property, get 20 offers the next day by putting in the MLS, it's really hard to get your creative financing deal accepted. Really hard, right? I mean, if they have, if they have options of you know, 20 offers, five of them are all cash, above asking price, no contingencies whatsoever. Another 10 of them are above asking price but with loans. And five of them are at list price or, or slightly below because they're just not in touch with reality. Um, you know, like, what solution do you offer them? as someone coming in with creative financing, right? That's the hard part. You need to have a solution that you can offer to somebody that solves the problem. And if they have the ability to solve their problem another way, it's gonna be really tricky for you. Um, And then also a challenging market is low buyer demand. If you can't get rid of your property, if you can't put a tenant buyer in there, that's problematic. If it takes you six months to put someone in your property, that's gonna be just gonna be a challenge for you. You can make those numbers work, but you gotta buy those deals a lot better, okay? Any questions on market conditions? Cool. Accessibility, availability, these can be hard deals to find. No doubt about it. Got to do marketing in order to find them. Need to find sellers willing to accept creative financing. So you're usually solving a seller's problem. Watch out. Strong availability might mean it can be harder to sell in a reasonable time. One reason sellers can be motivated because it can be difficult property to sell. So there have definitely been deals where I'm like, yeah, I, I could see why you'd want anyone to come in and take over this property from you because I don't want this property either. It's bad, like, I just have no interest in dealing with the problems. I I don't want to take on those issues. And so, I mean, there may be times when you're like, yeah, pass. Uh, Some markets are much easier than others. Talked about that. It's harder, but you might be able to invest in remote markets to find these deals. So it doesn't have to be your market. If you're in a market and your market's still on fire, um, you can go to other markets and do these. It's just different skills, different strategies. You gotta start doing this remotely, and then you got all the challenges of doing remote investing. Can be done, but make your trades. Can you use your retirement account to do these? Yes, you can. Yep, so you can do this. And uh, because it doesn't have to be like you know, non-recourse loans and the lender's not gonna set you know, 35% down payments or whatever they're doing, we're doing loans to your IRA or your 401k, um, these can be very attractive to do in your retirement accounts. So, because uh, there's no like, pre-existing conditions from the sellers with their financing. We're taking over a loan subject to, we're buying a, or getting an option or a lease option on a property um, could be definitely very attractive to do these alright so let's do some quantitative analysis now that I've got what like 25% left a little less than that. so creative financing real estate entrepreneurship requires work and effort like a job okay so even though we're gonna compare it to other strategies that could be much more passive in nature realize that some of the extra benefits that we're getting from doing these creative financing deals needs to be attributed to the actual work you're doing the labor you know, putting in all these extra hours. It's not like just going and buying a regular rental and having a property manager manage it. You're doing work to do these. So a more true apples to apples comparison would be to add in some paid manual labor for the equivalent work done in some of the other strategies. So if you're going to try to compare this to doing you know, regular buy and hold, maybe you say, OK, well, this is buy and hold, plus I'm going to get a part time job where I make $20 an hour and I work for whatever it is, you know, 20 hours a week. And so that becomes more of an apples to apples comparison because with this one you're probably doing like twenty dollar an hour work at least in order to go do these things, in order to find them. So how well does creative financing perform toward achieving financial independence? Well, let's define what financial independence is so that you guys understand how I'm, cl- I'm kind of classifying and calculating this. So when your investments provide your minimum target monthly income in retirement, what some might call lean fire or just regular fire, fire, fire is financial. Ch- Fire is financial independence, retire early. So it consists of money coming in from passive income from Social Security, pensions or annuities. That's number one. So any money you have coming in from Social Security, any pensions you have, or any annuities that you bought that are bringing money in, that's passive income. Plus, any net cash flow after all expenses on your rental properties. Plus, the third thing, your yearly safe withdrawal rate times any other money you have invested in stocks or bonds or things like that, okay? So you have a million dollars in stocks times four percent safe withdrawal rate that's forty thousand dollars a year that's coming in that's counting toward whether or not you're you're considered financially independent plus you have certain amount of social security coming in plus maybe you have i don't know five hundred dollars a month coming in from cash flow and all your rental properties you add all those up if that number exceeds the amount that you need to be um, the minimal amount you need to live then you are considered financially independent okay that's how i do my calculations and if you haven't done this there's a spreadsheet on the website Anyone remember what the spreadsheet address is? I don't remember what it is. But if you go look up ultimate financial independence, retire early budget, it walks you through all your expenses for like three different states in your life. And then you can put in your assets and it will do the calculations for you for whether you're financially independent or what you need to produce for that. Anyone come to that class to see the budget spreadsheet? You came to that? Was it a decent class? Yeah. OK, good. Good. Yeah, so go watch the class and go download the spreadsheet. All right, any questions on financial independence? All right, so these are the changeable assumptions. And since it's been a few weeks, I'll remind you what they are, uh, even though I've covered these in other classes before. So this is based on, if you guys are listening to the Real Estate Financial Planner Podcast, this is Norman Norma, this is their situation. They're married, they're both 21 years old. They recently graduated from college and they're working in a technology department of a large healthcare business. They have a total of $10,000 saved up right now, not each total. They earn $72,000 combined between the two of them, $36,000 a year each. They each earn $18 per hour. They work 2,000 hours a year, $36,000 per year each. They're saving about $1,000 per month before they buy any houses. So their savings rate is 1,000 out of the $6,000 a month that they're earning. They're obsessed about achieving financial independence so they can retire early. They want to find the best path to financial independence together. They're both taking Social Security at age 67. And I estimated Social Security based on them working until they are 67, which may not always be the case. So realize that that's not conservative, right? That's a little bit higher than that. But if they achieve financial independence before they turn 67, it doesn't really matter because that Social Security is just kind of a bonus at that point. Okay, so these are their assumptions. What we've done over the last X number of classes is we've gone through a bunch of different strategies. We did a whole class on them doing buy and hold and how that looks for them achieving financial independence. We did one on them house hacking. We did one on them doing Nomad. We did one on them doing fix and flips. Tonight, we're doing creative financing. We're going to find out how them doing creative financing impacts them doing. Impacts their ability to achieve financial independence. So these are also. Oh, and by the way, these are all assumptions that if you want to copy the scenario to your own account, you can copy them and then change the assumptions. So if you don't like anything I just said there, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I wish James used eighty thousand a year, or I wish James didn't have them saving a thousand dollars a month, I wish James did this. You can copy into your account, make any modification you want to, and then rerun it. We're modeling this for sixty years. We assume their effective income tax rate is seventeen point eight five percent. That's based on seventy-two thousand a year. Uh, 3% inflation rate, ha, 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 it's really funny, it's like 9% this month, right? But 3% I think over a long period of time is a reasonable assumption, even though we're in this really crazy high environment right now. Uh, that's what 3% is like, a real data-based number, like go look back over historical data, over a very long period of time, it's like 3 uh, Mortgage interest rates, I'll show you those on the next slide, but they're on your handout too. If you didn't get a mortgage handout sheet, did you get a mortgage handout sheet? Can I have yours? You guys have, you guys have everyone copies, right? You guys got them too, right? Everyone got a mortgage sheet? We'll talk about those in the next slide. But those are the interest rates I used. Then a 4% yearly safe withdrawal rate. Um, We're saying they need $5,000 a month uh, for their target monthly income and retirement in today's dollars. So that does increase with inflation over time. But it's really like $5,000 in today's dollars. And uh, their ideal lifestyle, if they can get there, is $10,000 a month. I'm not going to use that in the presentation. But that is a true statement. Okay. This is the mortgage rate handout sheet. In the middle section, it shows you all the different interest rates for the different loans for owner-occupant and for investment properties and stuff. So those are the assumptions I've used on the different classes. Today's class, I think we're using 5%, which is sort of like a between the investor loan and the owner-occupant rates that are even on there. Because we're assuming we're coming out of like a really good interest rate environment. I didn't want to handicap them too much, but I didn't want to use like 2.5 or whatever it is. Because I didn't want it to be too good. Okay, so uh, really, uh, young eyes, whoever can read this. What's line three, Rachel? Okay, so here we go. $375,000 property value, and that's the purchase price, although they're going to be buying at a discount, which I'll talk about here in a second. And it goes up at a rate of 3% per year. So I'm assuming appreciation rate is 3%. I'm being really, really modest in my opinion, and I think that's conservative. Um, Anything better than that helps them while they own the properties. It hurts them a little bit when they're buying more expensive properties in the future, but it helps them for the ones they own. Uh, They're taking over debt. So we're assuming they're doing some like a subject to or uh, wrap financing or something like that. And I've set the default that says they're getting a 6% discount from the after-repaired value. So this is that argument I made earlier. Look, you're going in there and saying, look, you're going to go and the alternative is for you to list a property with a real estate agent. You're probably walking away, although real estate agents are completely negotiable. You can use whatever numbers you negotiate with your real estate agent. But I think 6% is a very common one that people have used in the past. Um, So what we're saying is, no, we're going to buy the property at a 6% discount. Like what they would net if they walked away from a real estate agent is some way of looking at that. Uh, 4% in, of purchase price in the cost of acquisition. And we list this as closing costs. And where I got 4% from was 2% for down payment. So we're going to give the seller 2% to have them walk away, essentially, uh, which really means that they're not getting 6% discount they're really getting more like a 4% discount, right? Because we're going to give them about 2%, although it's 2% of the purchase price and 6% discount from ARV, but it's close. So 2% for down payment, we need to give the seller some money. 1% marketing cost, so 1% of the property value, our purchase price is what we're going to use in order to spend on marketing, postcards, letters, banded signs, whatever we're going to do in order to find deals. But we're assuming that that's a cost to do in the deal. And then 1% in the actual closing costs, going to get title work done, closing services, notary, legal fees, whatever it is there. So I just put that in there as kind of like a placeholder. So I use 4% for our transaction costs to do that. Seller's not giving us any concessions. They're motivated. Uh, We require six months of reserves of personal expenses, this property's expenses, and each of the other properties that you've already bought. And so I want to talk about this for a minute because it's kind of important. I use six months reserves because I think it's prudent for you to have these reserves, right? I think you acquiring rental properties and not having your personal reserves and you not having reserves for the other rentals you have or you having reserves for the one you're about to buy, I think is kind of silly. But I did run some variables. I ran some variations on these. But really, I said to start with, we're going to say you need six months of reserves of personal, six months of reserves of all the previous properties you bought, and six months of reserves of any properties you're buying in the future. I think that's prudent to have moving forward. And so you need to have all those reserves in order to be able to buy the next property. Uh, No debt to income limitations because you're basically taking over debt. So you don't go to the bank and qualify. So there's no DTI calculation that's going to limit you purchasing things, which did exist in other scenarios we ran, right? Buy and hold, nomad, house hacking. We looked at your DTI to make sure that you could qualify. In this case, we don't, right? We're not doing DTI because you're not qualifying for the loans. You know, we're not doing loan assumption in this example. Um, You're getting 1.5% of your purchase price back as a rebate from the tenant buyer when buying. So after you buy the property, I'm assuming that your tenant buyer is going to come up with at least 1.5% down. In this case, it is 1.5%, but I think that's a fair number to use. You know, It's going to be about $6,000, something like that. right? Uh, this gets applied to a credit when they buy it from you in four years. Now, the math, the way that we model this is not great for how we give the credit back, but I did include it in a really rough sort of way, but it's not perfect. I just wanted to warn you about that. Um, We're using a 5% interest rate that you're taking over on the loan and that you are paying PMI. They do have PMI on their loan. They didn't put that much down, so they got private mortgage insurance. Uh, We're using a 360-month loan, 30 years, Uh, $2,600 per month in rent, but rent also increases at that same inflation rate, 3% per year. You're likely to have negative cash flow if you ignore that upfront option fee you got and you ignore cash flow from depreciation. So a lot of folks, a lot of creative real estate investors will think about that option fee as some offset to their cash flow, right? If you get, as an example, if you get $2,400 as an option fee, isn't that sort of like an extra $200 a month for the first year in rent? So if you were like negative $100 a month on rent, but you got $2,400 in the option fee, it's not really negative $100 a month in rent if you really got the option fee up front. You just got like prepaid rent up front. Now it does count, as a credit to them when they buy. So it's not like it's really that way, but it does offset some negative cash flow. And if you're getting $6,000, that offsets a lot of negative cash flow, right? If you get a $6,000 option fee up front, it's like $500 a month for the first year, or $250 a month for two years, or you know, whatever that is for three years, I can't do the math in my head. So we're not counting that, we're not thinking about that, we're not counting the cash flow from depreciation. Uh, 3% of the monthly income is assumed vacancy rate, of the monthly income is the assumed maintenance rate, although if you've got a tenant buyer in the property, you could argue your maintenance rate is probably gonna be a little bit lower, because usually a tenant buyer, someone who's buying the property, is gonna take care of the property a little bit better than just a regular old renter. And you could negotiate that they're responsible for the first X in maintenance on the property, too. That's another way to structure this. I'm not gonna talk about how we calculate taxes and insurance, but we are calculating it's on there. Um, And then I'm not gonna go into details about how we calculate the uh, depreciation benefit. Uh, just for the sake of time but I, I do have that in there as well let me get a drink because i'm losing my voice you guys hear my voice or is it just like in my head you hear it sometimes it's hard to tell if it's just in my head or not like because you know you listen to yourself on recording every once in a while and you're like do i really sound like that i guess i do um, So buy up to 15 properties. Oh, yeah. So basically, I'm saying they can have up to 15 properties that they've acquired at any given time. I capped them at 15 because in some of these cases, they're able to buy like an infinite number, right? Like they eventually get to the point where some of the deals start popping. They've got a lot of money in their bank accounts. And really, they could go spend an unlimited amount of money in order to do any number of deals that they want. And I wanted to set a reasonable limit. I thought 15 sounded about right. Do you guys think 15 sounds right? Is it too low or too high? 15 right no? Okay, 15 sounds good. Um, I I do run some variations there how long you're actively buying for. Oh, I I only buy properties for 10 years because if I keep running this for, a a lot of times you're financially independent before 10 years uh, or like shortly after 10 years. So I I basically stopped acquiring properties at 10 and I did some variations where I extended out a little bit more made it shorter. But yeah, 10 years is arbitrary. And then I buy up to 15 properties. We sell them to a tenant buyer after four years. Historically, over a large data set, about um about it it takes it takes about three different tenant buyers in order to have a tenant buyer close on the property and so if you have a tenant buyer every year for three years you know I used four years it seemed a little bit more conservative could be longer than that could be shorter than that depends on like how you structure the deal what happens in the marketplace their ability to qualify financing availability a lot of variables in here but I think four years seemed like a reasonable cutoff. you could extend it out if you wanted to and I didn't count extra option fees you had right like you put a tenant buyer in there they could live in the property for a year and then decide not to buy you know they don't get married they get divorced they no longer need the property they're transferred out of of the area for work whatever the reason is but there are times when that tenant buyer is like i'm leaving and they just leave their option fee and now you're going to go find another tenant buyer and you get to collect another option fee by doing that so i didn't count that um and then Even after the 10 years they're selling property. So they acquire them up to 10 and then we can sell them four years after that. Uh, And then when you sell, it's 1% in closing costs. Usually you're gonna negotiate to have the tenant buyer pay all the closing costs, but this is sort of part of that offset to give them that 1.5% credit back. So I sort of finagled it that way, that's where that came from. You're not paying any real estate commissions because you've got the tenant buyer you've already found and the tenant buyer is buying directly from you, so there's no real estate commissions on the sale. Uh, There's a 25% depreciation recapture tax. So all that depreciation benefit you got, you're paying 25% tax on that number in order to do that. And that's conservatively high. It's really whatever your tax rate is with a max of 25. Um, And then you're paying 15% long-term capital gains on whatever gains you had when you do that. And I do all those calculations to do it. Any questions on my assumptions, all of which you can change? So after 10 years, when they sell all their houses, they are invested in stocks and they're using their safe withdrawal rate. I did not do any modeling where they mixed strategies. Um, the challenge with this stuff is, there are so many different variations. Like, once they're done doing all this stuff, do they do short-term rentals? Do they nomad? Do they house hack? Do they do buy and hold? Do they do hard money loan- lending? Do they, you know, what are they doing after this, right? And so. I mean, I could sit here and teach classes for weeks just with, oh, now they're going to do this. And you're like, OK, I'm not coming to that class. I came to the last one where they did something really, really similar. right? So this is sort of like pick one and stick with it. But I will add, you, know, you could go and model whatever you want. Or if you're unwilling or unable to do the modeling, you know, get me on the phone and we could do a paid consultation or something to do it. So all right, any questions on assumptions, all of which are changeable? All right, now I'm going to run through the numbers from previous classes really quick. I'm not going to go into really crazy details, number one, because of time, but number two also because if you go watch the buy and hold class, I go through the assumptions for how to get all of these. If you go through the house hacking class, I go through all the house hacking ones. You go through the Burr one, I go through all the Burr ones. So like I walk you through exactly how we do all that, and then at the end, I'm going to show you the, the ones for creative financing, which I will take some time. So if they did all stocks and didn't buy any real estate, it takes them 40 years in order to be financially independent. If they go and they do buy and hold strategies, there's a whole bunch of different strategies. Everything from buying one owner-occupant property and buying stocks, that takes 33 years. Um, Buying 20% down payment rentals, that's 31.42 years. Buying 25% down payment rentals, that's a little faster, at 28.67 years. Buying 15% down payment rentals with PMI as an investor, that's 33.5 years. There's a whole bunch of stuff where then you buy an owner-occupant, then you buy 20%, 25%, or 15% down rentals. Those are a little bit faster or slower depending on which one you're comparing it to. There's a whole bunch of ones where you do short term rentals. Those are really fast, you know, 23 to 24 years for those. Uh, There's ones where you buy an owner occupant property. Then you do short term rentals. Those are a little bit longer than you just buying straight short term rentals, but you kind of get the idea. So because of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but you see the numbers. And if you want more information on buy and hold, you know, that there's a separate podcast episode for that. Correct. Awesome. This is nomad summarized. If you go buy 10 nomad properties with 5% down, it's 26.5 years. If you buy 10 fixer upper nomads, it's 19.58 years. You buy 10 nomad by proxy. It's 24 years, 10 nomads. Then you do short term rentals with them. It's 12.67 years, which is actually one of the lowest in all of all these. Uh, You buy 10 nomad properties and you get the house hacking roommates, either one roommate, two roommates or three roommates or four roommates. It ranges from 21, almost 22 years down to 17 years about um, with those different ones. If you do Nomads, and you do lease option exits, it's about 31 years. If you do the Ultimate Real Estate Agent Retirement Plan, it's about 26 years. So go watch the Nomad class if you want details on any of those. We basically do this like class structure with Nomad for that. Here's the house hacking summary, and it went from vertical to horizontal because there's too many. Um, and so it shows you all the different house hacking ones. I'm not going to go. But basically, it's like how many different roommates you have and how many different properties you buy. So there's a whole bunch of variations on that. But here's the house hacking ones. Then I did Burr. There's three different Burr ones. There's doing Burr where you have uh, you leave 10% in the deal. That's 20, almost 22 years. There's Burr where you leave 5% in the deal. That's almost 17, it's almost 18 years. And then there's Burr where you can leave nothing in the deal, and that's just under 15 years for doing those. And then this is the quick turning class where you're doing flips, uh, whether you're flipping like every six months, every nine months and how much you're making with the flip, you know, 25K, 30K, 35K, 40K, 45, 50. If you do live-in flips, you do um, two-year tax advantage flips, you do two-year tax advantage live-in flips, you do all these different variations. So there's a whole bunch of different ones on here for all the different fix and flip ones. Go watch the fix and flip class for the numbers on that. And then here's the summary of all the ones so far. And what I tried to do to make it a little easier for you is I tried to color code them. So all the ones in red over here, are all the bur, sorry, all the buy and hold strategy ones. And this shows you how many months it took them to be financially independent using that definition we did before. And so now you can see the relative sizes of all these different strategies. So you can see how long it took all the different buy and hold ones, how long it took all the different Nomad ones, how long it took to do all the bur ones, how long it took to do all the quick turn flipping ones, and then how long it took to do the house hacking ones. And you could just see visually which ones tend to be the faster strategies. Of course, the detail, is something you'll want to go listen to the individual class for. But in general, Nomad looks really, really good. Burr looks amazing if you could do Burr deals. There's a lot of flipping stuff that looks pretty amazing, too. House hacking seems, I don't know, pretty good, maybe a little bit better than buy and hold if I had to kind of eyeball that. But you can kind of get a feel for like the different strategies and how they might perform. Does that make sense, everybody? OK. What about creative financing, though? So I did creative financing where I varied reserves. So down here is that six months of reserves. If you do the creative financing deals, as I described with all my assumptions before, but you mandated you had six months of personal reserves, six months of reserves of the property you're about to buy, and six months of reserves for every other property that you've purchased so far, it takes 17.42 years in order for you to be financially independent, and you stop stop acquiring after 10 years. So basically that's how long it takes you to do it. If you drop down to just five months of reserves for all three of those, you drop down to 15.42 years. So you save two years by doing that. If you drop down, you only have four months of reserves for each of those. You drop down to 14 and a quarter years. If you do three months of reserves, it's just under 13 years. You do two months of reserves, which I think is pretty risky, um, in my opinion. I think three months is probably pretty risky, too. But two months, I think, is pretty aggressive. Um, that's 11.67 years before you're financially independent doing this strategy. And if you, if you decide you're crazy enough to do this with just one month of reserves, uh, you can be financially independent under nine years. Craziness, right? What if you do, instead of doing months of reserves, what if you say, look, I'm only going to set aside $10,000 in reserves. It'll just up with inflation, but 10K. Well, that's about 9.17 years if you do just 10,000 in reserves. If you do 20,000 in reserves, 9.92 years, 30,000 in reserves, 12.67 years, $40,000 in reserves, 13 years, and $50,000 in reserves, 13.75 years. Um, so you can kind of compare those and then the ones below it are all the one month two month three month four month five months six months of reserves instead okay any questions on those all right last one i think nope sorry two of them two more um so this is how big of a discount you got so we, we've been doing this one so far which was uh six months of reserves and getting that six percent discount right like basically what a real estate commission might look like real estate commissions are whatever people negotiate but you know six percent looks pretty familiar um, but 17.42 years, that's a six-month one. What if you're able to get um, a little bit bigger discount, like 8%? That's 13.67 years. What happens if you're able to get 10% of discount? That's 11.92 years. What happens if you're able to get a 12% discount when you buy them? That's 10.67 years. So getting a discount does you matter know, in, in doing this. What about by buying period? What if you said, I'm only going to do this for five years? Well, it takes you 35 years in order to become financially independent. If you only do it for five years, then you just let your money grow in the stock market. And remember, they're saving about $1,000 a month. Okay? What if you do it for the, the 10 years I said? That's that 17.42 that we covered already. And then if you decide to do this for a little bit longer, 15 years, you're, you're financially independent after 12.67 years. So a little bit faster if you decide to do it longer. So I just wanted to show you that. OK, so this is the same thing I showed you before. Now I just slid in this whole red section here for all the creative financing so that you can get a visual of like how effective these are compared to these other strategies. And it's super effective, right? I mean, I think the creative financing ones, and I did all the variations that we just covered, it's pretty fast compared to almost everything else we've done. Um, you know, It becomes one of the fastest strategies, depending on like what you do and your assumptions about it uh, for, the, for doing that. Is that surprising to anybody? A little bit? A lot of work though, right? It's not like doing Nomad. You just buy a property every year and you live there. This one's like you're out there hustling and buying properties and, and doing things and putting tenant buyers in there and negotiating and structuring all that. Any final questions on this? Is that helpful? It's like this slide, especially with the colors. I took a lot of time to write the color thing for you guys. I, read, I didn't write special code for that. Like It was non-trivial. We good? OK. So in conclusion. The assumptions for this modeling matters a lot. You're doing different price properties. You're doing different rents coming in. You do different discounts. You're doing it for a longer period of time. They're saving more or less because they don't even get enough money to buy their first creative deal until they come up with six months of reserves, which isn't instantly. They only had $10,000 saved up front. So it took them a while just to get to the point where they have enough in reserves and money for marketing and closing costs and everything else before they can even buy their first property. So if you change any of those assumptions, this changes everything. That's why the assumptions matter so much. So if you change reserves or market conditions, the appreciation rate, rent depreciation rate, the price, interest rate, rent, vacancy rate, maintenance, property management, tax insurance, all those things are going to have an impact on those numbers. The stock market rate of return or what you're investing in. And, and, and it's not just the return, it's also your risk profile. You know, investing in the stock market is a very different risk profile than investing in bonds or crypto, <laughs> if you guys are into that, right? Um, you know, their target monthly income retirement. We said they needed $5,000 a month in order to be financially independent. If it was 8,000, that's very different numbers as well. Uh, the safe withdrawal rate for any money they have in the stock market, that's gonna come into play. Uh, the number and the frequency at which you buy these properties is gonna be a factor. And then how big of a discount, or the profit you make on each deal, or the cash flow you make on each deal is all gonna matter too. Then the strategies that work best in the off and that market may differ, so just because I used all these assumptions doesn't automatically mean creative financing is always better, or house hacking is always better, or Burr is always better, or whatever. Like Different markets will have different ones that are better. So you do the math for your situation, and you can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, and over time, it's not all done, but over time, the reason why I'm doing the individual city uh, podcast is gonna have, each of the cities have their own numbers done for these. So I'll pick whatever the city prices of houses are for there, and you know, their rents and their taxes and their insurance. And I'll run through all the buy and hold, all the house hacking, all the nomad, all the, um, the creative ones, and I'll show you the numbers for that city specifically. And that'll all be at that realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model page. You'll just pick your city and I'll do it. And then you could copy your city to your thing and, and make adjustments from there. Um, and then I'll be able to show you which cities are better, uh, which I haven't really done a lot of work on, but that's where we're headed with that. Yeah, questions? Can you remind me uh, for the reserves? Yeah. In stock market, okay. yeah. So I, instead of modeling and saying, okay, they're you know ten percent in cash and ninety percent in stock market, I said, look, we're just going to simplify this down, and all of it's at eight percent in the stock market. Okay. I thought I thought that was. It. Yeah, there was yeah. That and, like, yeah, we can model it differently. It's just a pain in the butt, <laughs> and and for the level of detail we're doing, I mean, there's so many things that are variable in this stuff that we're just not making variable at. That's the benefit of me teaching the same class 10 times, is that I say something different one time, and you're like, oh, I didn't realize he was talking about it that way. Yeah. OK, any questions? Because that's all I got, and I am like at time, I'm, and COVID voice and everything. <coughs> is that helpful? Yeah. Like a crazy creative financing class? Not probably what you were expecting coming in, right? You thought I was going to teach you how to do creative financing. Which I may still do another class, but this is sort of like, hey, now you know more about creative financing and the risk and scalability and how it performs. And I think this was the class that most people didn't know they wanted but do need. So at least that's my take on it. You tell me if I'm wrong. Helpful? Yeah. Okay, good. Any final you're very welcome. Any final questions before I stop recording? Awesome. Well, thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. I will see you all next week for partnerships. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Ventura is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.